between the hours of 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. There were three civil trials of Jesus Christ. Trials 1 and 3 will be held before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and trial 2 will be held before Herod, who was the acting king of the Jews. The Jews really didn't have a king. The Romans were in charge. But the Romans had this policy of letting there be some sort of puppet king in place in, in areas that they conquered. So Herod is this acting puppet king. When we last left Jesus, he had been convicted by the Sanhedrin in a hastily called session early, early in the morning. Presumably just as the sun is coming up. They ask him one question. If you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus replied that they would not believe him even if he told them. They follow up and ask him if he's the Son of God. When Jesus replies that he is, the Sanhedrin concludes that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy, that he's admitted that he's blasphemous, and they convict him of blasphemy. The punishment for blasphemy under Jewish law was death. But here comes the rub. The Jews were under Roman rule at the time. And even though it happened occasionally, Stephen Stoning might be one example, the Jews were not allowed to execute anyone. The Romans felt like that that was their responsibility. That was their privilege since they were in charge. So to obtain permission to kill Jesus, to make this farce legal, the Jews had to involve the Romans. They had to go to Pontius Pilate and bring him into it. It's early in the morning, and most of those who were in Jerusalem for the Passover were just waking up. In fact, the streets were probably quiet. The governor's palace was very near the temple. In fact, it sits on the northwest corner of the temple, the Fortress of Antonium. And so it's just a short walk from where Jesus was held that, for that last trial, that trial of the Sanhedrin, and they would not have had to go through much of Jerusalem to get there. Evidently, the, the priests and the elders had to decide how to present Jesus' case before Pilate because of the sensitivities of the issues between Romans and Jews at the time. Pilate was technically a procurator whom Tiberius Caesar had appointed in 26 AD. Judea and Samaria had become one province in 6 AD, This was the province that Pilate governed. Normally, Pilate wouldn't have even been in Jerusalem. He didn't live in Jerusalem at the fortress of Antonia. That's where he was staying because it was Passover season. It was Pilate's custom to live in Caesarea. That's where the Roman capital was. Beautiful, beautiful place. Probably in in Herod's palace, the Herod the Great's palace. But for this season, because it was the Passover season, because Jerusalem, which typically had a population of about 40,000, swelled to a population of either 250,000 or 2.5 million. It's very difficult to go back to ancient sources and see just how many people came, but it was an enormous number of people that came. When you have an enormous number of people in one place, then the likelihood that there's going to be some sort of ruckus breakout goes up. So Pilate had, as his custom, to spend the Passover season in Jerusalem. But this is not where he normally lived. We need to understand this man, Pilate, just a little bit in order to understand what's going to happen in these three hours, between 6 o'clock and 9 o'clock in the morning. Pilate's an interesting fellow. 
He seems to be a fair fellow, a fellow that wants to do the right thing, at least sometimes. But in the case of Jesus, he wants to do the right thing, but he ends up not doing the right thing. And that puzzles us, and we need to understand a little bit about why. In the providence of God, and this is providential, in the providence of God, Pilate is operating his governorship from a position of political weakness. He was on thin ice, as they say, with the emperor Tiberius. And that's not something that you wanted to have on your resume. Rome gave the governors of the territories quite a lot of latitude in how they ruled, just so long as one thing didn't happen. They didn't want any rebellion. Well, two things. They wanted the taxes collected, and they wanted no rebellion. Because the taxes collected was positive revenue. If there was rebellion, it would be negative revenue, because that meant they had to send troops from Rome to quell rebellions. And they didn't want either one of those two things. If they could just live in peace, pay your taxes, and don't give us a hard time, then the Romans were happy with what happened. And for a time, Pilate seems to have been, uh, have been someone who was able to lead in that way. But again, providentially, there were five incidents that had happened to Pilate before he ever met Jesus that put him in a position of weakness. So therefore, a Roman governor who would have been typically interested in justice ends up executing an innocent man. Shortly after Pilate gets to Judea in 26 AD, he sent troops to Jerusalem with images of Caesar attached to poles. To you and me, that's no big deal. If an image of Caesar is there, we wouldn't think anything of it. And he is attempting to show loyalty to the person that put him in charge in the first place, Tiberius, by performing this act. But it ended up unnecessarily offending the Jews of Judea who took this pole with an image of Caesar on it to be a violation of Jewish law. The Jews protested. And after six days, Pilate says, you don't, if you don't stop this protest, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> if you don't go home, you're dead. And that's not something we do anymore. But that's something they did back then. And they didn't leave. But Pilate didn't kill him either. So that episode suggests a man who lacks political skills, it doesn't present him as a savage tyrant either. If he was a savage tyrant, he would have gone ahead and wiped everybody out. He doesn't do that. That's one of the ways that the French Revolution ended, if you know your French history. The French mobs kept coming down the street, and Napoleon, this young officer, tells them to stop. They don't stop. Napoleon says, fire on them. He fired on them, and the French Revolution was essentially over. There's a little bit more to it, but it was essentially over. But Pilate didn't do it. One thing the Jews saw was that he's not going to keep his word. At least they thought he wouldn't. The second incident. There were hard feelings over a series of coins that Pilate had minted between 29 and 31 A.D., which had pagan cult images printed on them. There's no uprising, but there are hard feelings over this. And this is one more strike against Pilate. Again, the Jews don't like these graven images. The third incident, in order to build a 20 to 30 mile long aqueduct into Jerusalem, Pilate raided the temple treasury to get the money. The move was more insensitive than anything else because the money that he took had been previously designated for projects like that. But the manner in which he took it infuriated the Jews to no end. So tens of thousands of Jews surrounded Pilate's residence and threatened to do him serious harm. In response, 
Pilate sent his men into the crowd in disguise. And upon his orders, these men in the crowd who were in disguise began to attack the Jews. It seems historically verifiable that these men got a little bit carried away. And they took the violence way too far. Maybe that's not what Pilate wanted. But he did exercise a great deal of wisdom in sending these people out there into that much of a volatile situation. So things seem to get out of control apart from his wishes. I'm not trying to defend Pilate. We're just trying to see why he's in this weakened position when Jesus gets there. The fourth thing that happened during the time of Jesus' public ministry. In fact, the Gospel of Luke records this. Pilate apparently had some Galileans killed. For what reason, we don't know. And he had their blood mingled with the sacrifices in the temple. Can you see Pilate has just about had enough of the Jews? From his perspective, all this arguing over the images had been a little too much. So now, whatever these men did was apparently pretty bad. He had them killed and had their blood mingled with the sacrifices. Now you can see why the Jews went like that. Not at all. It created a great deal of ill will. And some point to this being the beginning of the enmity between Pilate and Herod that the text tells us about. And then not long, the fifth incident, not long before Jesus' crucifixion, Pilate dedicated shields coated with gold at the palace of Herod in Jerusalem. There weren't any images on the shield this time. Pilate got the point. But the Jews were offended nevertheless because there were certain names written on these shields. It seems as though by this time the Jewish leadership in particular had become hypersensitive with regard to the governorship. Now I want you to see Pilate's thinking. Around this time, history also records that Pilate is warned by Tiberius. I don't want any rebellions there in Judea. One more rebellion and you're coming home. He's got the Jewish leadership on the one hand that's already seen what kind of man he is. Fairly weak in terms of his sensibilities. Can be brutal but doesn't always follow through with his threats. On the other hand, you've got Tiberius saying, I don't want any more uprisings over there. If I have to send troops, you're in trouble. History also tells us that a few years after the crucifixion of Jesus, Pilate was taken away from his governorship, and he was expelled to southern Gaul. Now, I've been to southern Gaul, and if I get expelled to southern Gaul, that's fine by me. Southern Gaul is the southern coast of France. But it wasn't a very nice place at the time that Pilate was exiled there. We have a weak governor that Jesus is about to be brought before. Jesus is led to Pilate probably around sunup, perhaps around 6 o'clock in the morning. We need to remember that Pilate was most likely aware of Jesus' arrest because he had provided some of the soldiers that were going to be used to arrest Jesus. But he probably thought that the the Jews could take care of this matter in-house, that he wouldn't be needed. And I suspect that Pilate was a bit irritated into being drawn into this conflict in the first place. It's 6 o'clock in the morning. Now, Roman governors did typically start their day early. Pilate's not irritated because they got him up out of bed. He probably was already up out of bed. Roman governors typically started their morning very early, around 6 o'clock, and they were finished by 11 o'clock. It's good work if you can get it. That was their typical day. They at least rouse him, and they take him into Pilate's headquarters, but then they stop. They won't take him all the way in because this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they don't want to be defiled. 
So Pilate stands in his residence. The Jews stand out in the courtroom, or the courtyard, rather, because they don't want to be ceremonially defiled and hence not be able to participate in the remainder of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There's hypocrisy all over this. They're about to murder an innocent man, but they're wanting to make sure that they don't go into Pilate's palace, and that might defile them by being associated with the Gentile. So they're taking extreme precautions. You've heard me say many times, even this morning, when we celebrated the Lord's table, that Jesus celebrated the last Passover with his disciples. There's one note that needs to be made here, because the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, clearly indicate that Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples. John, on the other hand, seems to indicate that the Passover is not until the day of Jesus' crucifixion. There's been a lot that's been written about this. Many solutions have been proposed, but perhaps the one that, that gives us the least amount of historical difficulties is this. The Passover was a, as a general name. And the way the Jews used that term at the time was a term that included the entirety of the week's festivities of the Passover, or rather of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it's evidently their continuing participation in the feast that causes them not to go into this Gentile's palace. So that's the situation. This mob is coming with Jesus. He is bloodied and bruised by now because there's been violence toward the end of the Jewish trials. Great violence. Remember, they slapped him. They blindfolded him. They said, prophesy who it was that just hit you. They had spit in his face. So here's this figure of a beaten man. Not beaten down, but beaten up. A beaten up man being led in chains before Pilate. He's standing on his porch. The Jews won't go in. They're outside. So so Pilate comes out and says, what charge do you bring against this man? The Jews must have been a little confused by this. They weren't expecting that. Maybe there had been some deal worked ahead of time that when they brought Jesus there, Pilate would just pronounce him guilty. They're not quite ready to answer the question, so they give this silly answer. Well, if he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought you to him. Or him to you. Pilate throws it right back at him. He says, well, if there's no formal charge, then take him and judge him yourself. This is a man who really has had enough of the Jews. You could tell that. He's already irritated with them. He doesn't want to be drawn into this. The Jews answer, well, we don't have any right to execute anyone. We can't judge him ourselves. It's at this time that the Jews start just railing Pilate with charges against Jesus. They say he's guilty of many things. Among them, he stirs up trouble. He's subverting the nation. He opposes payments of taxes to Caesar. And he claims to be a Messiah, a king. They're not charging him right now with blasphemy before Pilate. He wouldn't have done any good. A Roman governor wouldn't have cared that Jesus had claimed to be a God. It wouldn't have been a big deal to him. They're having to be very careful with the indictment. The indictment is that he's stirring up a rebellion. Now that Pilate would be upset about for reasons I just told you. The Romans didn't want to send troops. He was in big trouble if there was another rebellion. And they knew it. They knew his weakness, and so that's why they probe and go right at it. Pilate brings Jesus right inside to his palace, probably just on the porch or the portico. And questions Jesus. And Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? That's what he wanted to know about. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, is that, is that your idea? Or does somebody else tell that to you? So what he's doing, Jesus is probing him. He wants to bring out in Pilate, if there's any light at all. Later on, he, he's got to have any discussion with Herod at all. 
But he does dialogue with Pilate. There's something there with Pilate. Is that your idea, or did somebody tell that to you? Pilate is very exasperated. He says, is that, am I a Jew? What would I, in other words, what would I know about this? And he follows up and says, what have you done? It's a reasonable question. He's 6 o'clock in the morning. You have this mob that brings, he brings him to Pilate. He's already beaten and bloodied and bruised. And now they come up with this silly charge. Jesus won't answer his first question. So Pilate what, says, what have you done? And Jesus answers him, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. But now my kingdom is not of this world. Don't let that one phrase pass you by. Jesus says, if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. He's already told Peter, put that sword away. I could call 12 legions of angels if I needed to. to Clean up this whole mess. He has resolutely set his face to go to the cross to die for you and for me. What he's telling Pilate is, listen, I'm not, I'm not a threat to your kingdom. My kingdom's a lot bigger than this. He's not saying there is no kingdom issue on earth. But he's saying my kingdom is of another realm altogether. It's not strictly of this realm. Pilate answers back, you're a king then. Jesus tells the truth. He says, yes, it's for this reason that I was born to testify to the truth Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. And then Pilate utters those words that have echoed all throughout the ages. What is truth? You can see his disgust. He's almost sneering. This is not a philosophical question at this point, I don't believe. I think this is a a question of exasperation. What is truth? Pilate questions Jesus again, but Jesus doesn't answer him this time. So Pilate goes back out to the crowd and says, I find no basis of a charge against this man. It's probably about 6.30 in the morning by now. And Pilate is looking for a way to get out of this. He sees this as a situation that's getting out of hand very, very quickly. So somewhere along the line, he hears that Jesus is from Galilee. And he figures he's got a solution. Herod's in town. Herod's the, may I call him the puppet king of that area. Let's just send Jesus over to Herod and he can take care of it. I'll be out of it. I'll have an excuse when Tiberius sends his message, what's going on over there? Well, it's not my fault. It's Herod's fault. I didn't do anything. I tried my best. I tried to quell this. I tried to put the the, the kibosh on it so nothing else happened. So he sends him over to Herod's palace. Herod's palace is, again, just a very short distance from where they were. So they didn't have to walk all through the streets of Jerusalem to get there. Herod was a bad guy. There is no redeeming value in Herod whatsoever. History records him as being just one of the lowest forms of humanity that's probably ever lived. People might put him on a par with Nero in terms of his personal morality. He just was a bad guy. Jesus sees no light in him at all. What Herod wants is a show. And he wants Jesus to perform a miracle for him. He's heard about this Jesus. Certainly heard about it from John the Baptist. But there is no light in Herod. And Jesus sees it. So Jesus doesn't utter a word to Herod. Herod sees he's going to get nowhere with this, even though the Jewish leadership continues to accuse him while he's before Herod. And then Jesus remaining silent, Herod sends him back to Pilate. We're probably up to about 7.15 in the morning now. All this happens fairly quickly. Pilate probably wasn't very happy to see Jesus coming back to him. He had hoped that Herod would handle this. 
probably somewhat exasperated. And so he attempts at this point to come up with another solution. He wants to save face himself. And he also realizes, like any good negotiator, that if you're going to negotiate a settlement, you've got to allow the other guy to save face as well, don't you? Otherwise, there's probably not going to be a, a settlement. That's why one party has to give and another party has to give. It's, that's what happens when compromises take place. So he comes up with this idea. He says, if I'll scourge him, I'm going to punish Jesus. And if I punish him, he's probably thinking, okay, that'll allow me to save face. I did something to this fellow. It allows the Jewish leadership to save face. Look how beaten up he is. And everybody can go home, celebrate the rest of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and everybody's relatively happy, except for, of course, Jesus and his followers. So he comes out, and he, in addition to the scourging, decides he's going to follow a Jewish custom and say, I'm going to release somebody to you, either Jesus or Barabbas. Barabbas was a murderer. He was a horrible criminal. We all do this sometimes. We give people choices, and we know there's no way they'll take the first one because we want them to take the second one. And that's what Pilate thinks he's doing. Surely they don't want this murderer, Barabbas, released. So Pilate makes the offer. You know what the Jews answer? No. No. We don't want Jesus released. We want him dead. We want him crucified. There's no doubt that Satan was at work in the crowd that day. There is no doubt whatsoever. Why do you want him crucified, Pilate asked. They don't say why. They just yell again, crucify him, crucify him. You can see this mob out in this courtyard filled with rage and filled with anger for what they really don't know. What has Jesus ever really done to them? He's a threat to them, politically and religiously. But if they thought about it, he's really done nothing to deserve this. But their emotions got, were way carried away. Pilate, wanting to get out of this, takes Jesus and has him scourged. This is probably, listen carefully, this is probably one of two scourgings that Jesus endured that day. The Romans had three different types of scourgings, but one type of scourging was a little milder than the other. Now, they were all brutal. They were all terrible. But one type of scourging was, a, was designed to punish someone, to put them through a lot of pain and to punish someone. Apparently, this one, while still brutal, was less severe than the one he's going to receive right before he's crucified, as most... Roman prisoners did receive. Jesus is scourged and he's brought out back before the crowd again. This is where Jesus is seen in that remarkable scene, standing before the crowd, probably wobbly. He's already been beaten by the Jews. Now he's been beaten by the Romans. And Pilate brings him out and says, Behold the man. He's not bringing him out to say, look at, look at this incredible person so much. He wants them to see, look what I've done to him. Isn't this enough? Behold the man. Now, we might look at it a different way. When I hear those words, and I think of my Savior standing there on wobbly knees, my Savior who could have ended this at any time, who's already been beaten by his Jewish brethren, who has now received another severe, severe, severe beating, by the Romans, standing there, looking out over the crowd, and them yelling, crucify him. Oh, this is a sad scene. Pilate had hoped they'd be satisfied with that. They weren't. Crucify him! Crucify him! 
Pilate says, you crucify him. I find no basis for a charge against him. The antagonism level has shot way up between Pilate and the Jewish leadership here. In this frenzy, the Jews respond back. We have a law, and under that law, he must die because he has claimed to be the Son of God. This gets Pilate's attention. Pilate's wife has already indicated to him. She's had a dream. Don't deal with this man. Pilate sees a man standing there, beaten to a pulp. There's there's been no basis for a real charge against him. He knows something is special about Jesus. He's already seen it in the first dialogue. And now he hears the words that he's the son of God. So he becomes afraid. He comes back into the palace, pulls Jesus aside and questions him. It's interesting the question he asks him because you can see that Pilate is mentally upset at this point. And he says, where are you from? Jesus doesn't answer that question. So Pilate gets more upset. And he challenges Jesus, are you refusing to speak to me? Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize that I have either the power to free you or to crucify you? Jesus replies right back in his face. You have no power at all. You would have no power at all over me if it wasn't given to you from above. Therefore, the one that handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. That was the Jewish leadership. Pilate again has had enough of this. He wants to set Jesus free. But they yell back at him, if you set him free, you're no friend of Caesar. Remember, they knew the historical situation. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Pilate then sits on his judgment seat in front of the crowd. He brings Jesus out and presents him and says, here is your king. They shout again, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And they answer right back, we have no king but Caesar. Come again? The Jewish leadership, the Jewish religious leadership says we have no king but Caesar? Pilate gives in then. He doesn't know what else to do. He has one of his servants bring him a a bowl where hands were washed ceremonially. He washes his hands before the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It's your responsibility. And then the Jews respond, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. It's at that point that Pilate hands Jesus over for the more severe flogging. One that was commonly administered right before crucifixion. This was a flogging that was administered to almost all Roman convicts. Because when they were going to be crucified, it was very possible that if there wasn't some sort of weakness in their body already, that they might live for four, five, six days on the cross. Crucifixion was a horrible thing. Men were not crucified as high as we see in some of the Renaissance paintings their feet would have been probably only a couple of feet off the ground. Dogs would come and chew at the prisoner's feet as they tried to breathe for days. In order to speed up the whole process, the Romans came up with this custom of scourging the prisoners right before they went out. That way they wouldn't stay on the cross that long. They didn't have to bother with it that long. 
In this scourging, the Roman prisoner was stripped naked and chained to a post and then beaten without mercy with a whip that was made of leather strands that had interwoven in that leather pieces of metal and pieces of glass, pieces of sharp stone and bone. Jesus was beaten repeatedly, stripped naked and beaten repeatedly, front and back. Eyewitness accounts, not of Jesus' scourging, but of Roman scourgings, say that typically the flesh was ripped off of the person's back and abdomen. So much so that oftentimes the intestines would be visible. This is the kind of beating that was administered to Jesus. This is what he went through before he ever got to the cross. This is the suffering that he endured, and he didn't stop it. If it's me, I stop it. If it's you, you stop it. We couldn't have gone through this. It's one thing to take a beating when you can't do anything about it. It's another thing entirely to take a beating when you can stop it at any time. And he didn't because he loves you and because he loves me. This is the most intense love that could possibly be ever portrayed. And he does it. It's interesting. We, we've always taught, theology has also always taught that it's the hours between 12 and 3 o'clock when Jesus is on the cross where he screams out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That that's the moment of suffering that paid for our salvation. But it's also interesting to note that in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, Isaiah, in some sense, includes the entirety of his suffering, probably from the time of his arrest on. And I think the reason Isaiah includes that is because had Jesus even had the thought that this is going to stop right now, it's all over for us. All over. He took this beating for you and for me, and he hasn't even gone to the cross yet. It gets worse if it possibly could. These Roman soldiers were not nice fellows. The Romans had an incredible republic and they had an incredible empire, but generally speaking, they weren't the most moral of people, generally speaking. They had already beaten Jesus terribly, and now they take him and put a scarlet robe on him and a crown of thorns and place it on his head, and they bow down and they mock him. Hail, King of the Jews! as they repeatedly punched him time after time in that bloodied face. But he didn't stop it. He could have, with a single thought, it would have all been over. And he would have been back in heaven, in the comforts of heaven, and we would be on our way to hell. Every single one of us, no matter how good or how bad we've been, every one of us would have been on our way to hell. Throughout all of this, Jesus exercised the greatest restraint that has ever been exercised. With a thought, with a word, it would have all been over. It had been over for you and me, too. He refused to save himself because his mission was to save you and me. And he was determined to complete that mission regardless of the pain that he had to endure along the way. He was going to die for you and for me on that cross, and nothing was going to stop him. Nothing. Think about that the next time you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning 
and feel unloved.